This morning's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, chapter 10, verses 25, 24 through 25, and chapter 11, verses 16 through 19. <clears throat> and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call on the righteous, but sinners. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last Miss Brittany and Miss Savannah to come. Uh, so time for children's worship. So first grade and under, please line up with Miss Brittany and Miss Savannah here by the door. If you're visiting here with us and you'd like to walk over with your children, that's appropriate. Um, if you haven't gotten a sticker for them yet, you can go over there and get that done in our new children's building um, as well. <clears throat> All right. So what does it look like for you to concern yourself with the state of lostness in the place where you live. If surveys uh, are accurate, which I don't have any reason to disbelieve them, 50% or more of our neighbors here in St. Tammany Parish, probably more than 50%, are far from God. That is to say, one out of two out of our family, friends, and neighbors don't have repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the good news of Jesus. So what can you do about that? How can you make an impact on that staggering number? What can we as a body do to reduce the lostness of our community? And while our gut response, trained by evangelicalism, is to say, well, I can share the gospel with them, that's true, but that's not the whole of Christian mission. That's part of it. But we've said this several times. Your part in the redemption of St. Tammany consists of two things. First, promoting the gospel with your life, and then second, proclaiming the gospel with your lips. Yes, you will need to use your mouth and talk to some people about Jesus, but your life must also reflect well on the gospel that you proclaim. It's like a billboard, and it says something about the gospel you proclaim. Our words and our lives need to be in sync with one another. In short, one essential apologetic that convinces people of the gospel's truth and power is a transformed life. 
Jesus has done something in you. So what can you do with your life actionably that will reduce the lostness of our community? Well, last week we saw the first and most essential act of gospel promotion, and that's prayer. That's something you can do with your life that is a decisive action that deals with the lostness of the place where you live. Praying for the unbelievers to to hear the gospel and to respond. Praying for gospel workers to be clear, to be bold, to be safe as they profess the gospel. But today we consider a second gospel-promoting task. So a second central gospel-promoting task is generously opening your time and your home to the lost. Now, why do I mention these two things together, your time and your home? I mean, you can make your time available to people. You can be generous with your time without also inviting them into your house. Why does your house, your home, have to get wrapped up into this? Well, this idea is an extension of the Old Testament uh, virtue of, well, not just the Old Testament, really the biblical virtue of hospitality. Now, if I'd asked you to list virtues that are in the Bible, I doubt hospitality would have been quickly on your tongue. You would have said things like truth and mercy and patience, but hospitality? That's a a virtue? Yes. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, we find hospitality to be a characteristic that God wants to be true of his people. Listen to these commands from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Leviticus 19 says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. Deuteronomy 10, Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who's not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So Israel has these strict purity laws about what they can eat, who they can associate with. Yet, they were to keep their gates open to any passersby, especially to those who were interested in what Israel was doing, who was interested in Israel's God, even to the point that they could become a part of Israel. So why have all these laws restricting Gentile foods and Gentile customs, yet you leave the door for the Gentiles to come in? Why these commands to be generous and beneficent to sojourners, immigrants, and strangers? Here's what I think we need to learn from laws like these. The Old Testament hospitality laws are first a foreshadowing of the church's commission to reach all nations. When you get to the New Testament and suddenly he's talking about his glory spreading to the ends of the earth and reaching all peoples, that's nothing new. We see it in the Old Testament too, in these laws, one of the places. Secondly, these Old Testament hospitality laws are grounded in a clear vision of depravity and grace. And I'll unpack that in a second. And they're also grounded in the character of Yahweh. So these commands, yes, they sound similar to the New Testament commands about reaching out to the Gentiles, to the people of all nations. But here's another reason that these hospitality laws are there. Lest the people of Israel start to think that they are somehow special among the nations. Lest they think they are chosen because they are somehow better or more beautiful or more glorious than the other nations. God says just the opposite. He says, 
Do you remember how I found you? You were strangers and sojourners in Egypt. You were an enslaved immigrant people. So Israel, don't get ahead of yourselves. Treat others as I have treated you. Love those strangers the way that I loved you when you were a stranger to me. So these hospitality laws are grounded in the dual notions of depravity and grace. Every human being is the same. There's nobody that's better than another. Without God, we are all wanderers. We are all vagabonds. But because God has loved us with grace, so we are to love all others with his grace in a way that mirrors his character. See? Radical hospitality. So the laws concerning the sojourner, immigrant, and stranger are all about the character of God. They're all about how God related to us, and then he invites us to relate to others in the same way. But this notion of hospitality didn't just evaporate when Jesus came on the scene. Instead, let's look at what the, the, the New Testament says first about elders. 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, Therefore, a, an overseer, a presbyter, an elder, must be above reproach. So that's your big overarching command. They must be above reproach. They must be... A one-woman man, husband one wife, faithful in marriage. They must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. In the list of requirements for elders in 1 Timothy, hospitable comes before their teaching ability. Now, exegetically, I don't know if that means anything, but it's interesting. Titus, we see the same thing. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So here are the things he shouldn't be, but what should he be? Hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled. So God expects the elders at least to be hospitable, be generous with their time, with their homes. But there's a reason. Because the character that God wants to be true of the leaders of the church, he actually wants to be true of, the lead, of everyone in the church. We want all of you to be above reproach, right? And so hospitality isn't something in the New Testament only reserved for elders. Here's a few examples where he spreads it out to the whole body of Christ. 1 Peter 4, show hospitality to one another, to other Christians, without grumbling. Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I'm not going to get to the angel thing today, but clearly he's saying, you remember those old laws about hospitality? Keep them going. And then Romans 12, contribute to, to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And what's interesting is there's almost a sense in this verse, just syntactically, he's saying, how do you contribute to the needs of the saints? By seeking to show hospitality. Somebody has a need, you open your life to them. You bring them in. So the New Testament writers continue this Old Testament ethic by telling Christians to be especially hospitable to one another. They're in the family. Another Christian, they're part of your family. So, they, I mean, they, they get to get, come right in. No problem. It's not even a question. But even also to strangers, to those who are outside the body of Christ. And here's how I want to bring this all together. Generosity with our time, our home, our food, and our resources with other people is not only an essential Christian virtue... It's also a remarkably powerful way to promote the gospel. Just think about it. How did Jesus connect with people? 
He didn't have a home, so he gets passed there. But how did he promote the gospel in the world? Jesus' way of life, and even the very concept of his incarnation that he drew near to us, that he entered our world, it could be understood as a radical generosity of time and resources as he aimed to cultivate relationships with us. He entered our world. He took on flesh. He took on our language. He drew near to us. He speaks to us. He gave us time. He gave of himself and even more. He spent time with the lowest of the low. He could have spent time with kings and you know powerful people, but instead he ate with the most overlooked, the most despised, the most forgotten. He hung out with sinners. To the point that he started to look bad in the eyes of the religious. So as disciples of Jesus, who want others to be disciples of Jesus, it only makes sense that we would imitate his method of mission in the world. And what was his method? How did he connect with the lost? Grab your Bible. Chapter 9. We're we're, we're seeing three different little vignettes here, three different sayings of Jesus. Matthew 9, verses 10 through 13. This is right after the conversion of Matthew, or at least Matthew's uh, agreed to follow Jesus, who was a tax collector. And verse 10 in Matthew 9 says this. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. They weren't in any hurry. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. God desires for us to love our neighbors. The point is not a a, a show of righteousness. That's not what God calls us to. He calls us to love our neighbors. A key way that Jesus promoted the gospel was spending time face-to-face eating and drinking with the lost, cultivating friendship and trust. So if Jesus took time to cultivate relationships with sinners over a table full of food, and if we claim to be his disciples, doesn't it make sense we'd be doing the same thing? Jesus so regularly associated with these people And with so many of them that his opponents accused him of debauchery, of drunkenness and gluttony. And what did Jesus tell us? We read it earlier in Matthew 10. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, this was in the context of Jesus having cast out a demon, but the principle applies. Our imitation of Jesus should be such that the insults hurled at him would also be hurled at us. So if we've been so hospitable in sharing our time and our home with the sinner, have we spent that much time eating, drinking, and cultivating relationships with the lost that we could be accused of being debauched, drunks, and gluttons? Now listen. When I told you back at the beginning of the year that I felt like God was calling us in 2023 to own the lostness of West St. Tammany Parish. When we started talking about this back in January, I bet some of you thought, man, 
We're going to have to be like Jehovah's Witnesses, aren't we? We're going to have to go out and knock on doors and have these weird conversations with strangers. Or you mean I'm over my lunch break at work, I'm going to have to have these high-intensity conversations trying to convince my coworkers to believe in Jesus. That's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you to eat with people. I'm telling you to laugh. I'm telling you to be a, a good neighbor in your neighborhood and to enjoy life with the people that God has put near you including those who are far from God. I'm telling you to make friends. Which, for the record, our country already was in a drought of friendship before COVID happened. But now even more so, people don't have friends. We have people we talk to on Zoom, but we don't have friends that we can be with. That when they're weeping, we can hold them. When they're hungry, we can can feed them. Or we can rejoice in their children being born and grieve as they have losses, right? That's what Jesus is calling us to. But what is being friends? What does all that have to do with reaching the lost? If we don't have relationships of trust, wherein people know our true selves, we can never hope to promote or proclaim the gospel effectively to them. Why? Because the apologetic that's missing from our evangelism often is a transformed life. If people don't know you, if they don't know your love, if they haven't seen you in your home, and quite frankly, if they haven't seen you sin and repent and then work toward restoration and live differently, if they haven't seen all of that in you, then the gospel is going to be a hard sell to them. The gospel isn't an idea that we convince people of. The gospel is the good news that there is one God. He is reigning and glorious over everything, and he sent his son Jesus to undo the power of sin and death among humans. And unless people can look at your life and say, I can see sin and death and brokenness being undone in them until they see the work of Christ in your life firsthand, well, most of our words are just going to fall flat. It's just another idea in the marketplace of ideas. So what can we do? Open our lives up generously offer our time and our home to unbelieving friends, family, and neighbors. It is a vitally important act of gospel promotion. But that's not so easy, is it? It's fun to talk about. Why is this a problem? Why is this hard to be generous with our time and our home? Well, being generous with these two things targets two of our biggest idols in West St. Tammany, which are our free time and our image. So the idea of just kicking back, relaxing, reclining at the table with tax collectors and sinners, just fettering the night away, it sounds pretty fun, doesn't it? Until you get off work (laughs) and you just want to go home. Kind of just want to veg, you want to sleep, right? And in St. Tammany, we love our free time. When we get off work, that's my time. That was their time at work. This is now my time. And a lot of that time is already getting spent on kids' events and the expectations of family and friends that you can't escape and home responsibilities. So if I get a night off, you know what I don't want to do? Have somebody over that I don't really know so I can have supper with them. What little bit of free time I have, we covet it to keep it ours and to keep it free. Yet... We need to recognize that we own none of our time. 
It is all Christ's to use as he desires. So my free time is not my time. Your free time is not yours. It all belongs to Jesus. And so we have to be asking ourselves this question about our free time. Am I using it as Christ desires? Now, I'm not trying to create some kind of pious paranoia that you can't ever sleep, that you can't ever rest with your family, that, that you can't watch TV sometimes. In fact, you know what? You have a whole Sabbath day that God gives you to rest and to cultivate relationships and to breathe and to not work. But I'm just trying to point out that we, that I, I spend a lot of my time selfishly that could be spent promoting the gospel by cultivating relationships. And I've got to ask Jesus. He's my Lord. How does he want me to spend that time? And again, remember, I'm just telling you to hang out with people, right? Have a couple drinks, enjoy life. And if you're introverted, I'm not telling you to be an extrovert either. I'm saying be yourself. The goal here is real friendship, transparency, enjoying time with people who are lost and sojourning on the earth. Now, our free time is not the only idol I mentioned. I also mentioned our image. Um, I've heard before you can learn a lot by a person by riding in their car with them, right? My car is full of trash, as my children consistently remind me. So if you get in my car, it might change your view of me. You, you might learn, you know, gasp if you need to. You might learn that I'm a human who consumes a lot of coffee and uh, leaves his vehicle full of books and granola bar wrappers. But going into someone's home is even more of a revelation, especially if that drop by is impromptu. You see, the Wood household, uh, if you walk in our side door, it tends to have a pile of about 30 shoes right by the door where we kick them off to the point that finally when we are tripping over the shoes getting in the house, I say, we got to get these shoes out of here, guys. And so as you're taking your shoes to your bedroom, usually our living room is littered with puzzles and books and toys everywhere. And for the record, I wrote this sermon at home this week. The desk where I wrote this sermon is surrounded on all sides by probably about 15 books, a mixture of D&D and Star Wars and theology. And there's like five stacks of cards, like gaming cards, really nerdy stuff you wouldn't want to know about. And uh, also there's a pile of, of scouting stuff for trail life. Uh, it's chaos. It's cha- it makes sense to me, but it's, it's chaos. So if somebody's coming over to the house, we feel an urge. We need to get everything cleaned up. We've got to get everything in order and close the door to the bedroom, right? Because we have an image that we want to project. But... Hang with me. What if instead we were just ourselves? What if we invited people over when we didn't have time to clean up or make ourselves presentable? What if we cast the idol of image aside and allowed people to experience us as we actually are? To spend time with people, or perhaps most terrifyingly, to invite them into our homes requires a level of transparency and honesty that we are uncomfortable with. But that's precisely how people see our shared need of the gospel. If people think you are perfect and all put together, the the, the perfect citizen of St. Tammany Parish, what does that tell them? You don't need the gospel. You don't need anything, right? 
You're self-sufficient. You've got your whole life under control. But if they see you honestly as you truly are, warts and all, what do they learn? They learn that you are like them. You are deficient. You're in need. You're not all put together. In fact, you don't have a leg to stand on by yourself. And that's a good thing. Because when we are deficient and when people can see our deficiency, what does that give opportunity for? For God to make much of himself. He loves to glorify himself in our deficiency, in our weakness. In fact, that's where the gospel starts. You want to follow Jesus, what do you have to say? I'm screwed up. I got nothing. I'm making a wreck of my life. People need to be able to see our deficiency and the sufficiency of Christ in it. But note this. Being generous with these two things, your time and your home, can put you on the quote-unquote wrong side of religiosity with Jesus. Let's look again chapter 11. We saw already in chapter 10 where... Jesus said if he was accused of being a servant of Beelzebub, we'd be uh, accused of the same. So if he was accused of being a drunk and a glutton, the odds are good the same could happen to us if we walk in his way. Matthew 11, verses 18 and 19, it says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. That last part's important. We have to be wise. Being accused of alcoholism and gluttony are not the goal. We live in South Louisiana. I was at the parade last night. It would be very easy for us to traipse into the dangers of drunkenness and gluttony in the context of aspiring to spend time with the lost. We have to find wisdom. We have to find balance as we do this. But the basic point still stands. We should be so generous with our time in our home. We should be so pursuant of friendships with the lost that religious people who are confident in their righteousness, they start to wonder where our righteousness might actually come from. You see, we are not righteous because of our outward works of religiosity and piety. We are made righteous through a relationship with Jesus Christ. We know Jesus, we trust Jesus, we've received his righteousness through faith. That is our confidence, not our appearance to others. But we can be nervous about what people might think if we have a certain type of person over for dinner. Your Christian neighbor might be scandalized by the bumper sticker on your lost friend's car (laughs) when they see it in your driveway. Your dear Christian friend might be concerned to see that you put an ashtray on your back porch. But this is the way of Jesus, to open up our lives to the lost, to be hospitable to them, regardless of how that will impact our image to others. We open our time and our homes to the people who are close to us but are far from God. Why? Because we have the gospel that they so desperately need. Do you see how wildly simple and even potentially fun these first two gospel-promoting tasks are? Prayer. And hospitality. And I know there are barriers that keep us from being generous with our time in our homes. This is probably something husbands and wives are going to need to talk to about each other. You're going to have to pray through. Uh, maybe you're really into this already and you're ready to do it this week. So what am I actually asking you to, 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 to ponder and to consider? Here's the challenge. First, be intentional to cultivate friendship with the people on your Oikos map. 
Um, if y'all don't remember that, this is from like two weeks ago. Um, we, we made a little chart that says, who are the people who are close to me but far from God? So that I've got folks here, you know, friends of mine and uh, people in my neighborhood, kids here in the church and others. But then, who are the people that are close to them but are far from God? Because ultimately, we want the gospel to spread through them as well. So the, the first challenge, you can go back and listen to that. You can do this activity another time. But that's the first question. I want you to be intentional to cultivate friendship with those people. Just You've already written them down. You've been praying for them for two weeks. Just invite them over for supper. Figure out some way to be hospital. If you, you can't get them into your house yet, yeah, that's cool. Go to their house or go to coffee or something. Be intentional with them. But secondly, if you don't have many or any lost friends in St. Tammany, I know some of you just moved here. Some of you have been a part of the church. These are your friends. You don't, you don't know any lost people. That's okay. Choose a place or a hobby where you can become a fixture and engage. Pick a place. You're going to eat breakfast there every day for the rest of your life. Pick up a hobby. Go to Michael's. They got like, I don't, they got like lady hobby things. I don't know what they actually are, but go there and do it. Engage. Use that as a means to get connected. Play music. You, Chris, Chris can hook you up. You can go play guitar with people. There are a lot of ways around here where you can engage with people and cultivate those relationships. But do something to take the first step to engaging the lost with your time in your home. We can't promote or proclaim the gospel among people if they don't know us, if they don't trust us. And how is that trust going to grow? There's only one way that I know of. Spend time together. Eat together. Cultivate friendship with one another. And you may think, well, what is a friend? We're talking about this in Sunday school today, so you could hang around and we could talk further. Randy Frazee wrote a book many years ago about this very topic, and he called it Refrigerator Rights. You know you're really friends with somebody when you can go in their fridge or they can go in your fridge and nobody cringes. There's that much freedom that you could do that. That's what we would love to see be true. So cultivate friendship, yes, with one another. We see that in the hospitality text, but also with the lost. Follow in the footsteps of Jesus, regardless of how that will impact your free time or your image. This is the work to which Jesus is calling us. So what can you do this week to promote the gospel with your time and your home? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you that the yoke of Jesus is light. It's not hard. It's easy to follow in his way. Now, there are challenges. But, Lord, what you have called us to, this hospitality, is something that we actually want deep down in our hearts. And it's something our neighbors want. We want friends. And so help us, Lord, to be intentional, to be mindful and careful, uh, to do this work well, to cultivate friendships with each other and also with the lost so that they could see the work of the gospel in our lives, so that we could have real friendships, meaningful, transparent friendships where the glory of Jesus can be seen. Lord, for those who don't have friends who are lost right now, I pray that you'll give them opportunities. Show them how they can get engaged with their neighbors in a way that leads to those kinds of friendships. Lord, Bring your glory in St. Tammany. Turn the lost toward you. This is our desire. Show us how to live it out. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.